0: can open up your Bible to, if you have one, uh, to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, We're going to start at verse 5 here in just a few minutes. Uh, But as usual, I wanted to say thank you to you as a church family uh, for your ongoing generosity uh, as a a church, as individuals and collectively. uh, Continue to be very encouraged by the ways that that you give, whether you have much or little, the ways that you give from what the Lord has given to you to seek to further his mission uh, here in Winona Lake and Warsaw and even around the world. And I would like trying to give a little taste or sample of what good is coming from that when I can each week. And and one thing is very obvious and just in the very near past that happened this weekend was we got to host our first ever bilingual event, at least to my knowledge, our first bilingual event uh, Friday night and yesterday morning, even into the afternoon. Uh, and it was a wonderful time together. I know some of you got to come to that even, but uh, I want to say a special thanks to Pastor Larry and to, to Ben Navarro uh, for teaching and translating. They gave much of their weekend uh, to the service of brothers and sisters that came uh, teaching on marriage, answering questions, giving instruction from the scriptures. And I was encouraged by it, and I know all the participants were as well Uh, it was nice to see uh, folks from other churches even unbeliever a a brother I talked to not a brother yet but hopefully a brother soon uh, that came and enjoyed being instructed in the Lord and so we were able to fund that from your generosity from our generosity as a church family so I wanted to say thank you on behalf of those that came and it it whetted my wet my appetite for the future what we could do to continue to reach out uh, to people even the nations among us and remember we're part of the nations that God has saved and to, to make sure that gospel keeps going out around the world, but here as well. One side note, that was a joy too. There was um, a few of our boys and girls from the church, uh, especially Brooklyn and Eli, uh, who are learning Spanish. They're in the dual language uh, program, and they greeted Friday and Saturday night. So even to see young people in our church wanting to take the the skills they're acquiring to minister uh, to people is just a joy to see on many levels. So thank you to you uh, as a church family for helping enable that uh, this past weekend. All right. I hope that you have found uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to, I'm going to in a few minutes read starting at verse 5 and go through verse 9. But I wanted to kind of uh, prep us for what is going to be discussed there uh, so we can be in the right frame of mind. And I wanted to start with a, this is, it can be a controversial question. I've actually heard Christians argue about this unnecessarily and kind of ridiculously about this. So don't answer this out loud when I ask it in a second, even if it feels very obvious to you what the answer is to this question. Maybe it's not as obvious. Uh, But the, the question I have heard fellow Christians argue about is this, is who rules this world? Again, don't answer. Who rules this world? Uh, you may have a, an answer that just instantly comes. To your mind. You might think, how could anybody think anything other than this? Uh, I actually think there's three answers that could be valid, uh, that, that ways we could answer this question with le- legitimacy, as long as we're saying them in the right way. Uh, and hopefully, if you had an answer, it's one of these three. Uh, but the, the first one that many of our minds and hearts probably go to is we think who rules this world would be that we say Jesus rules this world. Uh, that we've even been seeing in Hebrews, and we're going to see again today that everything is under his feet. The, the whole universe is under his feet. He rules over all things. So if you answer Jesus, I would say you are not wrong. I, I think that is correct, that he is the ruler of this world. Uh, but another answer you may give, and this is the two sides that I've heard argue this typically, is there's folks who will also answer, and they'll say, if I'm thinking who is the ruler of this world, it's Satan. And that may surprise some, but Jesus himself, you read through the Gospel of John, especially as He got closer to his death, he used the title, the ruler of this world to refer to Satan. That's not me saying that it was Jesus saying that. Grant, he was saying he's gonna be cast down. He's going to be brought down as the ruler of this world. But Satan is spoken of as being very active and us even as sinful people being born under his rule uh, as as people who come into this fallen world. So you could answer Satan. The third answer that you may not think of, but I I think today's text and the one that follows next Sunday are gonna bend us in this direction as a possible answer as well when we think of who rules this world would be to say we do, that as human beings do, Uh, that that we and all the creation of God amongst everything, every being that he created, he gave human beings a unique responsibility on this planet in this world to rule it, to govern it. And we're going to see that a little bit this morning. And so as we think about who is the ruler of this world, there may be some controversy, there may be some disagreement or nuance to those things. But what this text today is going to Answer, a question it's going to answer is a very similar one, but a little nuanced and different. It's going to be, who rules the world to come? Like, who rules the new world that has already started and that is is coming? It's going to be established by God. Who rules that world? Who rules the world to come? And it's, it's important for us to know this, right? Because if we want the scriptures speak again and again about God establishing a new creation. There's going to be a new heaven, and a new earth that he's going to establish, that he's already establishing. If we want to be part of that, if we want to be, in a sense, transferred from this world upon death and brought into that world. If we want to be part of the world to come, would it not be important for us to know who rules that world? And how does that person tell us how we can gain entrance into it, how we can become part of that world? That would be wise of us, right? If that's a desire of our heart to be in that world, to think who rules it, how can we be part of it? And so this text today is going to help us answer that question of who rules the world to come, and there is nothing that could be more at stake than the answer uh, to that question. So if you've not been with us the last couple weeks, we, typically we just start at the beginning of the book of the Bible, or a book of the the Bible and we work our way through it so we've been doing that the last few weeks so we've gone through Hebrews 1 and the start of chapter 2 what the author of this book or this letter it's kind of like a sermon like a written sermon what he's been doing to start has been trying to show the superiority of Jesus over angels and he's done that in all sorts of different ways already he's going to continue to do it today uh, we've heard of ways he's superior that he has a superior name Right? He's the son of God. Angels are never called that. We've, we've heard how he has a greater commission uh, than the angels, how he has a greater destiny than the angels, that he has a greater message, a greater salvation to offer than the angels. And the author is going to continue comparing Jesus to angels in today's text, but now he's going to talk about rule, who rules uh, over the world to come, and he's going to show us, spoiler alert, that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come, uh, that, that angels are not, Jesus is. He is the ruler of the world to come. He's just adding to the list of ways Jesus is better, Jesus is superior to angels. And the thing he's trying to drive home again and again to us is that if that's true, if Jesus is better than the angels, we ought to listen to him right? And if he is the ruler of the world to come, we must listen to him. Like that, that would behoove us, right? To listen to the ruler of the world to come. Uh, that we don't have a responsibility to listen to angels as much as we have a responsibility to listen to Christ. And so I want to read this for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 9. And then next Sunday we'll finish chapter 2. But today we're just going to look at this handful of verses. Hebrews 2 verse 5 through 9. And so if your eyes are there, you can follow along with me as the, the author of Hebrews continues, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize today's text with this sentence and then we'll walk back through. Uh, But my summary of what I think the author is, is trying to communicate here and what the spirit would want to communicate to us today through this text would be this, is that if you want to reign with Jesus there, you must listen to him here. If you want to reign with Jesus there in that world to come, then you must listen to him here. Uh, I think that's the message of this text. And so uh, you can see right off the bat in verse 5, as in today's part of Hebrews, right off the bat, that the author is trying to make a very clear statement uh, that it is not the angels who rule the world to come. Right? He doesn't just start by saying Jesus rules the world to come. He starts by saying who doesn't rule the world to come. He's saying it, is not, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And so implied in that, if you hear it rightly, he's saying the world to come has actually already started right? Like that there's this world to come that someday going to be fully established a new earth, a new heavens that's going to be fully established but he talks about that like past tense like it's not to angels that God has subjected the world, there's somebody else he's subjected the world to come to uh, and uh, the, the, it's important that he's establishing right off the bat it's not angels. As impressive as they are as glorious of creatures as they are they are not the ones who are going to rule the world to come. There's someone else who is going to do that, namely Jesus. And so angels at best are ministering spirits, right? That's what chapter 1 verse 14 called them. It called them ministering spirits. They're not ruling spirits. They're ministering spirits. As impressive as they are, at best they are ministers. They're, They're people who serve the Lord, serve the Lord's people, but they were never intended to be rulers. Angels were never intended to rule, but human beings were. And this is a glorious thing uh, for us to think about, that human beings were made to rule. And so that is ultimately what the author is going to say in this text, is that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. But he has kind of like a detour to get there. He doesn't just out and out say it directly, just say, guys, Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. He, he kind of does this detour. We have in our little town a little detour that's inconvenient right now, that as I thought of this, my, my, my like I'm trying to just get to the same place, like it's a straight path. I should be able to just get there, but i got to kind of go around this way. And the author kind of takes us on a detour to get us to the point, Jesus rules the world to come. But the detour is on purpose. He's wanting us to read part of Psalm 8. Uh, He's wanting us to read this quotation from Psalm 8. And so we're going to go on that detour with him for a moment to see why he quotes Psalm 8. What is he trying to say? And I I want to use a few headings to unpack this text. uh, And it involves with things that people were looking at, things that king david was looking at things that this author who wrote this whoever it was was looking at things something that we can look at those are kind of the headings that we work through and i want to start by showing you from this text when david looked at the heavens when king david looked at the heavens what did he see what did he feel what what happened in his heart and so it's a curious way that the author introduces this quote right if you look at verse 6 he says this he says it's been testified somewhere that is a really weird way to introduce a quote from the Bible, Just say, it's been testified somewhere. I don't know why exactly he wrote it that way, but it's curious, it stands out. Because the people who read this, I mean, he is quoting the Old Testament, constantly in this book and this text he's citing would have been one of the more famous parts of the scriptures of the old testament they would have known with the, i could see them kind of smiling when they heard it's been testified somebody's like oh i know where that was testified like i don't know that they would have called it psalm 8 but they would have known uh what the psalm was they would have known the context of these verses uh that some of you even know uh, that these verses that he quotes from Psalm 8, when you go back and read Psalm 8, what prompted those words, these words that are kind of set off here in this text, what prompted that originally in King David? If you go back and read Psalm 8, the verse right before this, he had said this. It's like he's looking up at the night sky because he said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Then he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And so this quotation, I think the hearers would have known it, was the words of David when he would look up at the night sky, when he would look up and see these points of light. And we know way more about these stars than he did. But he had enough uh, knowledge in his heart and, and just felt this existentially inside of him. When he would look up at the heavens, he was just awestruck. There, there was wonder that, that happened in his heart. This, he, he started to realize how big the world, the big the universe is, and how small he was, even as the king of Israel, how insignificant in comparison he is. And his quotation here, these words, I don't know if you've felt things like this before. We don't often just pause in our world and look up at the night sky, but if you ever do, you've probably had some thoughts like this. Like, when I look at the heavens, what is man, what are humans like us that you are mindful of us, right? Like God has created this vast universe and he's mindful of me. Like he's a, he knows that I'm here. Like he, he's, he's attentive to me. Uh, so he's first awestruck that God is mindful of us as human beings, that <laughs> so he's even aware that we're here. And then it's like this progression of awe and wonder because it's not just that he's impressed that God is mindful of us, but there's like a deeper step where he says, what is the son of man that you care for him? It's not even just that God knows we're here in just some corner of the universe and he knows we're here doing our thing. He, David is in awe that God not just is mindful of us, but that he cares for us. That, that he has a heart for us as creatures that he has made even in spite of our smallness and our limits. So he's, he's awestruck that God's mindful of us and that he cares for us, But then I think what blows David's mind even more, and it's going to get toward the subject of rule, is the most surprising thing is that God has crowned us with glory and honor. And that God has put everything in subjection under our feet, right? He's using singular pronouns there, but he's talking about human beings. That that God has crowned us with glory and honor. God has put everything in subjection under our feet as human beings. Uh, And David is is dumbfounded uh, by this, particularly because he knows there's beings God has made who in a lot of ways are more impressive than us, namely angels. Uh, He says... God, in verse 7, you've made us lower than the angels. There's limits we have. There's weakness we have. There's smallness we have that angels don't. Yet when it comes to who God gives rule to, it's not the angels. It's us. It's human beings that God has given rule of this earth to, rule of this world to. Angels in many ways are more impressive than us, but they were not made. And David is saying that here in Psalm 8. Angels were not made to rule. They were made to minister, they were not made to rule, but human beings were, like human beings were made to rule. If you look back in the very, very beginning of the Bible, uh, back in the very first chapter, Genesis one, when God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, some of you are familiar with this, but in Genesis one, verse 28, there's this glorious statement where God says, or it says that God blessed them and God said to them, this is the command he gives, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and then he says this, and have dominion. That's like rule language, like royal language. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is what God, that's the command God gave to them is to rule, It's to spread out over this earth and rule over the fish, the birds, every living thing. Like we were to rule over this world that God gave us. That was what he made us to do at least in part, was to rule this world, to selflessly, lovingly use our lives to care for the world God had made and care for the people in it. That is what God made us to do, was to rule the earth. And I, I want you just to think of that for a moment because I, I want you to recognize, you are all human beings who are hearing uh, this, that, uh, recognize the glory and the responsibility of being a human being. I I think that is lost on us a lot of times. We we don't pause and think about how significant it is that we are humans, not horses. That we are men and women, we're not like insects, or we're not little atoms, we are people, we are human beings, and God has given us a a royal responsibility. He's given us a responsibility to rule over this earth, to rule over the things that he created. He made us to do that. And we, we don't think about that. We are so content with just thinking of ourselves as uh, just a fill in the blank of whatever role we have in life. I'm a student. I'm a neighbor. I'm an employee. I'm a teacher. I'm a spouse. I'm a church member. I'm a, I'm a whatever. We, we tend to think of ourselves as these smaller things that we are. And we miss totally that. I was thinking of this like we are the royal family of the universe right? Like, like, there's only certain beings that are to rule in this universe, and it is us. Like, God made us. He made you. He made me to be rulers of this world, to, to take care of it and tend to it. We are, and don't let this puff up pride in you, but we are glorious creatures, we are, and we don't think about that. We, we just think so little of ourselves. We don't think about the nobility, the dignity, the significance that we carry within us just by the fact of being a human being. And I, I want this text to impress that upon you. I think Psalm 8 should impress that upon you. To be more impressed with God but to not be unimpressed with human beings, to know we were made in a special way to rule over this earth. And so that's the detour that the, the author takes us on as the see in Psalm 8, human beings were made to rule. Angels were not made to rule, human beings were. Even though we're lower than the angels, we were made to rule all things that God had created. But we don't feel that, we don't, we don't feel like rulers, we don't feel like royalty, we feel often insignificant, valueless, aimless and I think a large part of why is because we stink so bad at ruling (laughs) like we are terrible at it we are not good rulers and when you're a bad ruler you don't often think like find joy in being a ruler because you know you're bad at it right and so the second section I want to impress upon you and it's going to be in verse 8 like after he's quoted Psalm 8 is I want you to see what what happens when the author looked at the world so when David looked at the heavens, he had this, this glory impressed upon him that we were made to rule. But then what the author does is he kind of takes his gaze, takes our gaze back down to this world, and he wants us to look at it and squarely face reality, uh, that, that this, is not, this world is not how it was made to be. Like we, we don't rule how we were supposed to rule, right? Because he affirms uh, in verse 8, he, the author, whoever it is, is affirming the reality of what David said back in Psalm 8, right? He's saying, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. There's a lot of pronouns in there, and he and him, and who are these things. Verse 8, I will acknowledge these, him and and he, uh, his, these types of things. I think you could interpret these two ways. Like, I think you could interpret what he's saying here as referring to Jesus specifically, or I think you could interpret them as talking about human beings generally. Uh, I think either of those are valid ways, or maybe he meant to communicate both of them. uh, That everything's in subjection to him, is that to Jesus or is that to us? Uh, That he has left nothing outside of his control, is that to Jesus or is that to us? I would think, as more I thought about this week, I would tend to lean to saying that here in verse 8 he's still talking about human beings in general. Uh, That he's still talking about men and women in general, even though he's still using that singular word. But he's affirming that what David said is true, yet that God has put everything in subjection to us. Like, he has still kept us with the responsibility to rule. Like, we have that responsibility in this world. And there is nothing outside of our control. Like, we were the ones. We were the pinnacle of his creation that was given the responsibility to rule in this world. That is still true of us, that we are supposed to be ruling this world. But what he acknowledges at the end of verse 8, I think we all would acknowledge in our own lives, right? He says, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him i still think that him is us like he's saying undeniably this is true in all of your lives it's true in my life we don't yet see everything in subjection to us because it's it's not we we fail miserably at ruling how we're supposed to everything is not in subjection to us and it has been this way for thousands of years Uh, that everything has not actually been in subjection to us. We are given that responsibility, but it doesn't happen. If you go back, again, to the very beginning of the Bible, I'm not going to read any specific text, but just mentally, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, back in the Garden of Eden, those very first humans that were given dominion, that were supposed to rule over everything that was in that garden, everything that was on that world, when the serpent came into the garden and tempts them, did they exercise their dominion rightly? No, like they failed. One of the first times that they had a chance to fail, they listened to an angel, right? They listened to a a, a temptation that came from the serpent and it's like things were put on their head. The ones who were supposed to rule, men and women, let Satan rule over them. An angel came and tempted them. They listened to him. They, they, let, they listened to his voice and what he, commi- what, what he hints that they should do and everything gets turned on its head. The royals fail. The, the rulers fail. And the world has never been the same. And us all as their descendants still do the same thing. Like we still fail at ruling. We, we are terrible, terrible rulers. We do not rule as we ought. And I, I would just challenge us to think about this, that of ways, some ways that we don't see everything in subjection to us right now. Just think about how poorly we rule ourselves. right? Do you rule yourself rightly? <laughs> Like, just forget the world yet, but like, as a creature, do you rule yourself well? I, I, I think all of us, if we're honest, would say no. We don't even rule ourselves rightly, let alone the world. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland said this, and you could broaden this beyond just males, but he was writing two men when he wrote this. He said, we men born to be kings aren't even in command of ourselves. Uh, that, that was convicting for me to hear that. We're made to rule the world, And we don't even rule our own heart well. We're made to rule the universe. We don't even rule our own instincts, our own intuitions, our own minds. We don't even rule ourselves well. But even if we did, even if you think outside of your own mind and heart, you start thinking outwardly a bit. Do we rule well in our relationships? Do we rule well in our friendships? Do we rule well in our families if God's given us a family? Do I, do I exercise responsibility well in those spheres? Like do I care for people? Do I lay my life down for them? Do I operate in wisdom and, and patience and, and graciousness towards people? Or, or do I fail them? Do I let them down? Do I even mistreat them sometimes? So we don't even, rule our, our friendships and relationships rightly. Then if you keep getting at bigger and bigger levels, we don't govern, we don't rule our communities rightly. Many of our communities are just a mess. Like we, we don't care for people rightly. We mistreat people, we take advantage of people, we look past people, we, we fail people in our communities. Everything is not subject to us. It's supposed to be. We've been given that responsibility, but we don't exercise that rule rightly. And we experience in our life this, don't we? This everything not being, in, being subject to us. In your own lives right now, it's part of what was motivating even how I prayed a bit ago. In your own life right now, I mean, how many ways are you experiencing this lack of subjection to us that you're experiencing in your life chaos or conflict with other people? Or you are facing disease. There, there's a lack of control even over your own body and health. There's like dysfunction in a community you're part of or a workplace that you're part of. There's division. There's addictions that we we lack ability to even control ourselves and our own instincts. There's apathy that we experience in ourselves and in others. There's obsession where we get overly obsessed with things that should have lesser roles in our life. There's indulgence where we take good things and we just indulge in them too much. There's poverty in people's lives. There's pain. There's abuse. There's... You could fill in the blank with a thousand other ways that we feel this. Things are not subject to us. We are not in control of the natural world. We're not in control of our own hearts. We're not in control. We don't govern well our own communities. And more than that, it's not just that we don't rule well, but we are ruled by Satan before we come to Christ. It's not just that we're neutral and we fail to rule. We are being ruled by someone else. Like there's like this coup that has happened. There's this overturn where prior to coming to Jesus, prior to being born again, we in the world are ruled by Satan. A fallen angel is ruling over the ones who are supposed to be the true rulers of the world. And if we want the, the clearest evidence of things not being subject to us, the clearest evidence that things are not subject to us is the reality of death. Death comes for all of us. It comes for every person. It may come early. It may come later. It comes for all of us. And we have no control over it. We can prolong our life. We have improved our life a lot. There are many things that are in subjection to us in the world today that were not 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. One thing we will never have under our feet left to ourselves is death. I can assure you of that, I, based on the word of God, is that no matter how much technology advances, no matter how much society improves, death will still reign. Like we will still have that great enemy that we must face ourselves, that, that someday will overcome us, someday will conquer us physically in this body is the reality of death. And so that the author is wanting to face us to face this stark reality that not everything is subject to us, The the world is a mess, we are a mess. Death reigns, Satan reigns over this world in large part. And he's emphasizing what we don't see at present at the end of verse eight, right? But as he shifts to verse nine, this is gloriously good news because he's shared some bad news. After saying what we don't see, in verse nine he turns and says what we do see or who we do see, if you wanna say it that way. And this is the last heading I wanna use is when we look to heaven. If we started by saying when David looks at the heavens, like the sky, what he's doing, this author's doing, when he gets to verse 9, is he's wanting us not to look at the sky, but to look at heaven, to look at the new world that's already begun there, uh, the resurrected Jesus. He's wanting us to look there. Because, and he's going to emphasize this tons as we go through the book of Hebrews, is that when we look to heaven itself, we see a human being ruling. We, we don't see an angel ruling in heaven. We don't see an angel ruling over this new creation. We see a human being crowned with glory and honor. That is a glorious thing, that is true right now. If we have the eyes of faith to see heaven, there is a human being on the throne of heaven. Uh, and there always will be There's, in this new creation. And it becomes clear to us as he, in verse nine, talks about this person Jesus Uh, who is ruling in heaven, you'll notice he uses in verse 9 a lot of terms and language from Psalm 8 that he quoted, right? Because he's trying to show what human beings were supposed to do, like what we're supposed to do, like in ruling this world well, ruling God's creation well, and that we have failed (laughs) and continue to fail it. He's trying to show us God sent a human being to actually do that to actually rule the right way, to actually rule and take care of the world and take care of people the way that God wanted to. And he did not send an angel to do it. He sent a human being to do it. And that was the only way that it could be. I was thinking of it this way, is that God would never send an angel to do a man's job. Right? Only a man could rule the world. Only a human being could rule the world, not an angel. Only a man, only a human being could die in the place of fellow sinners and become a ruler of the new world. Angels could never do that. But a human being could and a human being did. And that's what he's trying to teach us in verse 9. So I'll just read it again for us. He says, when we see him, so what we do see, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So hear that Psalm 8 language. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is gloriously good news. This is just in a couple words, a a short sentence is encapsulating the story of Jesus and and who he is, what he's done for us, right? Because he says that God made him for a little while lower than the angels. That's talking about how God the Son, the creator of all things, the creator of angels, uh, how he became a human being. Human beings are lower than the angels in many ways. And and The author is saying Jesus became that. He joined us in that, this lowering of himself, this humiliating of himself in some ways to become a human being. He lowered himself by becoming a man. Side note, this makes me realize uh, and just appreciate why when we read the Christmas story every year, like you read Luke chapter two, why there is throngs of angels there when Jesus is incarnated, when he becomes a humanist, because it's just wonder of wonders. And this one who created us like, is becoming this little thing, like this little being that like cries and coos and, and needs, equivalent of a diaper change like the the angels are confounded by this like how could this be that he is lowering himself below us but he did he became a human being once and for all he lowered himself being lower than the angels and then jesus as a human actually lived out psalm 8 what it was what we were supposed to be like he ruled rightly over himself right he interacted with people rightly he measured things rightly. He used wisdom. He, he never sinned against people. He never lashed out people. He, all the resources God gave him, he used them wisely to love people. He, he taught true things. He never gave in to temptation. He ruled over the world rightly. Like, he did not deserve death. He, he even demonstrated power over nature, right? Like, everything really was subject to him. Like, he could calm storms. He could raise dead people. Everything was in, in his control. Even as a human being, he ruled the right way. But ultimately, this, this verse continues, verse 9. It says that now we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. that phrase is reminding us of the cross that this one who lowered himself below the angels even though he ruled rightly even though he deserved reward he deserved blessing he deserved favor from god the father this text says that he tasted death for us like he took our horrible rule our our ways that we rule terribly that we rebel against god that we seek to be our own rulers we've rejected god we deserve suffering and judgment Jesus deserved honor and glory, but when he went to the cross, he took all of our disobedience, all of our poor rule onto himself and let himself be crushed. Let himself be put to death in our place. We should have been the ones who were suffering under the the judgment of God, but Jesus suffered in our place. He tasted death for us rebels, for us traitors, for us poor rulers. And when it says that he tasted death, for everyone don't think of that as like a little like sample like he just kind of took like a little taste test of it to kind of see what it's like and then to tell us like oh it's not that bad everybody like death isn't that bad when it says he tasted death it's like he took it all down like he swallowed it like he sometimes it talks about the wrath of god like a cup that he would drink he drank all of that Like the one who had ruled rightly took all of this judgment that should come on the people who ruled poorly. He took it all upon himself, suffered all the wrath of God for our sin. And just think about the glory of that. The one who had created the world, the one who ruled over the world, he became a human being and then he suffered for us. That was the pinnacle of him showing right rule, right? Is that as he looked out at fellow human beings, who had abandoned God, who had rejected God. Jesus didn't look at us and in his rule say, well, forget you all. Like, I I don't care about you. He laid his life down for us. That is what a good ruler does, is to say, I will suffer for my people. Like, even though they don't deserve it, I will lay my life down. them that is what Jesus did his death was not something that showed like he's weaker than angels or that he's less than angels his death showed his greatness his death was the pinnacle of his rule it was the way that he showed he was literally given a crown of thorns that I think God had be done on purpose right it was a real crown because that was his crowning moment and the world may look at it as like it just showed the nothingness of jesus the unimpressiveness of jesus the scriptures would tell us no it showed us the greatness of jesus that he is the one person ever who has actually ruled rightly even to death that he is willing to lay his life down as a king not to make us lay our lives down for him but for him to lay his life down for us that is the type of king that jesus was and the type of king that jesus is and that's why the author says because he has suffered death that way that is why he's now crowned with glory and honor. Like he, his, his death actually brought further glory, further proof of how good of a ruler he is. And he was laid in the tomb that Friday after death. But God the Father, having seen the way that this son of his actually ruled, and even seeing the way that he died, the way that he laid his life down for his people, God the Father raised him back up as the firstborn in this new world and this world to come it's like that sunday morning god started a new creation by raising this man his son jesus back from the dead and he has now crowned him with glory and honor We were supposed to have that, and in some ways we do have that, kind of, right now. But Jesus has glory and honor that infinitely surpass ours presently. He rules over everything. Like, he is establishing a new earth where he will rule forever, where there will be no death, there will be no suffering, there will be no dysfunction. But in his humiliation at the cross, he was not shown to be inferior to angels. He was shown to be infinitely superior to angels. And so when these readers of Hebrews, when they were being tempted to just listen to the message of angels, go back to the law, listen to what God told them, what this author is wanting to impress upon them and what I would want to impress upon us is the only person who can rescue you from death is Jesus, not angels. There is no message, there is no person other than the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus that can rescue you from death, that can bring you into that world to come. There are messages that can maybe help you live life better here and kind of polish up your life here, maybe refine a little bit of how you rule here. There is no one other than Christ who can deliver you through death, who can deliver you past death, can raise you up to eternal life. Jesus and only Jesus can do that because he's the only one who has ruled rightly and he rules now. And so this is vital for us to think, if he's the one who rules that world, God has already started this world to come and Jesus is the ruler of it, it is wise, I'm gonna come back to where we started, it's wise for us to think, how do I become part of that world? Like how, how do I get to enter into that world and be part of reigning with Jesus? And we should listen to how Christ tells us, right? If he's the ruler of it, he's the governor of it, the king of it, he tells us how to enter it and he has told us clearly again and again that the way to enter into his world, the way to enter into to reigning with him in the new earth and in the, in the new creation is not by becoming a better ruler. It's not like you just need to like become a little better ruler and become a little better, better ruler and, and rule a little bit better here and there and kind of refine these parts of your life. And once you achieve a certain level of quality rule, now you can be part of this new creation. Now you've met the threshold. No. like He says again and again, the way you become part of this world to come is by turning from your sins and trusting in me. It's not by just making yourself better. It's by trusting that I already suffered your judgment. I laid down my life for you. You don't need to do anything. You can't do anything to impress me. You can't do anything to gain entrance into this kingdom other than to fall down and say, thank you for dying for me. Please forgive me. And if we do that, that is the, that's the way we enter into his kingdom. That's the way we enter into this new world. It's not by merit. It's not by becoming better. It's be, by becoming uh, humble and repentant and laying our merits down. Like saying, Jesus, you have done this. Help me. In, bring me into your kingdom. I cannot do it myself. And that is who Jesus receives. I would point out to you in verse 9 the word grace. Grace. The author says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. God's grace to us is that we can't earn entrance into this new kingdom. We can't suffer and die and then be raised ourselves because we were good rulers, because we're terrible rulers. But we have one who has laid down his life for us and who's now been crowned. And he tells us, just lay your good works down. Turn from your efforts to impress me. Confess your sin to me. I am glad to receive you. I've already suffered. I've already uh, done everything necessary to bring you in. So we can enter into that world if we are repentant, if we are trusting of Christ. But the glorious thing that I want to end on is by telling you not only that we get to be part of that world, but we get to be rulers with Jesus in that world. I don't know if you think about this much. In the new earth, in the new world, those who are Christ's people get to rule with him. Not as if we 're equals with him, but we get to rule with him in Second Timothy chapter two, verse eleven through twelve, uh, the, the apostle Paul said this, and i 'll just let this largely speak for itself. He said, "If we have died with him, we also live with him, and if we endure, we will also reign with him. That is glorious to think about that we who have failed in our rule God hasn 't just permanently revoked our responsibility to rule and say, well, we tried that once, guys, and you get no other other opportunity. We are still made to rule. We are still made to rule over the creation of God, and someday we will get that opportunity to do that again if we're united with Jesus, that there will be this new earth where we will get to rule rightly, how we were supposed to, how we're supposed to now. So if you want to reign with Jesus there, I would say listen to him here. Uh, take him at his word that the way to enter into his world is by repentance and faith and and he will bring you in tomorrow the world will be watching I know many of you may be watching too uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth in England Uh, she is going to be laid to rest I believe tomorrow and she had a long rule Uh, She ruled for 70 years, which is almost unheard of uh, in our world today. And I I was talking with a British friend of mine the last week or two uh, since her passing, and I was really moved to hear him discuss her faith in Christ uh, and the way that even in the later years of her life, she was becoming increasingly vocal about that, that even as the Queen of England, maybe the most recognized woman in the world, uh, she knew that she needed a Savior and that she had a Savior. Uh, who, who rules over a world and a kingdom that is far greater than hers. And uh, I, w- I was uh, made known of this, that there was a book written a couple years ago, uh, I think when she turned 90 even. Uh, and I think it's the only book, if I heard right, that she ever wrote the foreword of. She wouldn't write a lot of things, but she wrote the foreword of this book. And it, w- it was a book, I just wanna share the title of it with you, because it's a, a wonderful title. The book was called, the. Cer- it was about her, and it was called The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. I love that. Like, the, the Servant Queen and the King She Serves. And I just thought that was a beautiful, beautiful picture. That she really is and was a royal, right, in our world. She had rule uh, over a kingdom. But she knew that there was a greater royal that she must answer to, that she must serve. So this lowercase r, royal serving a capital R royal of Jesus. And I just thought, what a beautiful way to say what should be true of all of us, that we are royals, whether we acknowledge it or not. We are princes and, and princesses. We are future kings and queens. That's what we were made to be and do and someday will. But there is a greater royal who has gained us the ability to do that, the, the person Jesus Christ. And so may we be servant queens and kings who have a king that we serve. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing one last song, and I'll leave you with the word of benediction.